Welcome to Color Me Dead. This is a true crime podcast, and we talk about murder and fuckery most foul in detail while using the darkest of humor. If you don't like words like fuck and cunt, then you probably shouldn't listen. But if you do, then join us while we fuck your feelings. Thank you guys for tuning in. Sorry this is late. Uh, Also, thanks for everybody that commented and participated in the follow-up from our last episode. I got so many messages <laughs> from that one. Um, I I certainly rustled some jimmies over yes. my Q&A shit. Um, if you guys are interested in going to ageofradio.org slash colormedead, you can go there. Check out our sponsors and affiliates. You can look up other shows available on the syndicate at Age of Radio. And you can also donate to our Patreon or you can go to Patreon. And thank you very much to Melissa Morgan and Sharon Hoffman as our examinators. And all of our Patreon peoples. I couldn't get that last episode on Patreon because it was too big, just so everybody knows why it wasn't there. It was too big to upload. It was almost three hours, wasn't it? Yeah. There's only a certain amount that you can get on there, and that one was just way too big. Oh, it happens. Yeah. If you guys want to find us on social media, Twitter, at Color Me Dead Pod, Facebook, Color Me Dead Podcast, or join us for Fuckery Mouse Foul and Heinous Fun at the Color Me Dead Podcast group. You can get us on Instagram at Color Me Dead Podcast. You can find me at Color Me Dead Angel or Nikki at Gory underscore Nikki. Yes, you can. I've been very inactive on social media lately. I'm so sorry. Uh, if you guys want to send us a packages or fan mail or any of the sort, you can send it to P.O. Box 1610, Vernal, Utah, 84078. We love the packages. We love packages. I love uh, speaking of packages. Thank you. Jennifer Rose Watson. Yes, we got sharks. We got Harry Potter. We got... Hit the button. Oh, yes. Fuck it, dude. Fuck it, dude. Hit it again. Fuck it. Fuck it. Thank you, thank you. If you randomly hear a fuck it button, that's because we're done. Fuck it. Fuck it. Yeah, we both have sharks for our desk now to go with the sharks sharks theme that we've had lately. I sharks. I cannot speak today. <laughs> if you guys want merch, go to colormedeadpod.threadless.com and check out all of our fun shit. It's very fun. Very fun. So fun. All the fun. Get your fun. <laughs> go on. Get your fun. Go on and get you some fun. Your fun's delivered right to your door. Right to your door. Uh... <laughs> Today is episode 111, and I put together, I know that you guys have a lot of requests. A lot. A lot. Um, There's a couple that I want to work on. I know people have asked us if we've covered certain people, or could we do follow-ups on current events, Um, and we will get there eventually. Not all of it can be done in... The short amount of time every week that I have to write episodes. Well, yeah, that we have because we have our lists. We have, well, we have my list. We have your list. We have listeners request lists. Like there's lists upon lists upon lists of people to cover. Um, Also, just so you guys know, um, I have gone from graveyards to day shift. Yay me. Um, That means that I have less time to put together episodes because I don't get to do that during the day um, like I used to at night. 
So I've got to put them together um, during the day, like after work or on my days off. So it might take me a minute to get to some of these requests. But my kids just went to school, so hopefully I have more time to do them on my side. I know. I've only got one child in school now. Just one. Just one child. I have all three. I have seven hours to myself, which I have plenty of shit to do in that seven hours. I'm excited. (laughs) Yesterday, I cleaned in peace for the first five. I was like, and it's still messy. Um, I don't want to talk about dirty houses right now. Dude, mine's so gross that I cleaned for five hours and can't even tell. Uh, if I cleaned for five hours, it would certainly make a sizable dent. Mm-mm. But um, my children didn't do fuck all besides track dirt in all summer long. Um, whatever. I Like I said, I don't want to talk about it. Okay. So I have dubbed today's episode, Bitches Be Trippin'. <clears throat> Women Who Kill. Mm-hmm. Today, we're going to touch... We're going to touch on a murder that you may or may not be familiar with. Um, And like I said, I dub the bitches be trippin'. We're going to talk about a girl who murdered out of envy, pride, and resentment. One of the favorite ladies in true crime, Candace DeLong, has actually weighed in on this. You can find her on YouTube when you look it up. Um, She actually talked a lot about motives in situations like this in this episode. for this episode yeah Uh, a dramatization of this can be found on lifetime and i'll list that at the end this is the murder of kirsten costa and this took place in 1984 in the affluent community of orinda california kirsten was a bright and beautiful 15 year old girl who was active in her miramont high school she was a varsity swimmer a member of the cheerleading squad as well as well as yearbook and was a member of a service club an elite organization called the atlantis club It was these activities that started the brewing resentment from her classmate and murderer, Bernadette Prodi. Now, Kirsten, Kirsten, why did I say Kirsten? That's my cousin. Well, I said Kristen every time reading it because I just... It's Kirsten. When you said it, then I just noticed it was Kirsten. I was like, Jesus. Um, There are some names, regardless of how I know that they're supposed to be said. Right. You look at them and you're like, Kirsten. Nope, Kirsten. Moving on. Once your your brain says it, then you see it that way. Back at the ranch. Kirsten was born July 23rd, 1968 to Arthur and Barrett Costas and had a younger pe- a, a younger Peter named Brother. Yes. A younger brother named Peter. On the surface, Kirsten and Bernadette were very much alike and their differences are really superficial. However, they both lived in the well-off community. They attended the same school. They both came from fairly wealthy families. Both girls were members of a sorority service club called the Bobo Links. And I they don't were re- like it. They were referred to as the Bobbies. Now, I don't know why. Okay, I looked. I tried to figure this out. Right. Why was the service club called the Bob O'Links? I don't know, but I just don't like it. And so, anyway, it was kind of like what a, like a rotary club would be, mm-hmm. where they get together and they do service projects and fundraisers and stuff yeah. like that. Um, both of the girls were well-liked and popular, but for Bernadette, her overwhelming desire to be liked and envied became an obsession. And while we're being like, we're all aware that being a teenager can be brutal at the best of times. It very obviously can be exponentially worse for a lot of other Mm -hmm. people. Now, this is kind of like uh, when we were discussing Michelle Carter and we referred to her as that friend that just fucking tries too hard. Yeah. That was Bernadette Prodi. 
That's what I was thinking when I was reading this, yeah. too. Like, the one that wants to be, like, wants, wants, wants so bad that it's just not going to happen. And it's forced. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, you almost want to look around and be like, stop trying to make fetch happen. Yeah. It's not going to happen. No. I'm going to have to go home and watch that fucking movie now. But Me too. <laughs> so, Bernadette Prody was one of those friends that tried too hard. And she wouldn't allow friendships to grow and form and blossom naturally, she wanted to be that person that was instantaneously liked and approved of. And that's just not how it works. It's not. There are a lot of people that when they show up to a place, they're instantly liked. They're very charismatic. They're, I am not that person. Um, You know, it's funny. I either, you either really like me or you just fucking don't. It's very rare that you hear, like, if you go to somebody and you're like, you know Angel Prue, right? And they'll be like, oh, yeah, I love Prue. Or they're going to be like, eh. Yeah, I know her. Yeah, I fucking know her. (laughs) No, seriously, like, that was perfect. There is no middle ground for most people with me. You either love me or you hate me. Um, Is what it is. Fuck you. Where's my fuck it button? Hit it. Bernadette Prodi's family was not as well off as Kirsten's family. Um, And though she was accepted, and she was popular in her own way. Now, was she popular the same ways Kirsten was popular? No. But many of her classmates was like, everybody knew who she was. She was, you know, she was popular in her own way. She had a staggering inferiority complex. And it... It started in a deep-seated, like, she manifested a deep-seated hate for Kirsten. Bernadette had begun blaming her inadequacies on Kirsten, and, you know, she's this vibrant, pretty sophomore who seemingly stole the show, so to speak. And one of the large parts of Bernadette's, like, her, like, take every mental and emotional pain or like any anguish and then give it a human body form. And that's what that's Kirsten her. was for Bernadette. Bernadette J. Prody was born on September 20th, 1968 in Contra Costa County. <laughs> that, that one's I times. know. <laughs> the I yeah, dude. To Raymond and Elaine Prody. Prody. In my head I say it different than what it's supposed to be said, so I keep fucking myself up. Sorry. She's the youngest of seven children. That sounds fun. The rest, five sisters and one brother, are several now, years. That. There's seven of you and one boy? One. That poor little bastard. I know. Are all several years ahead of her and were born in San Francisco County. Only one sister is close to her age, who is two years apart. They're two years apart. The oldest sister is 10 to 11 years her senior. The I can totally relate to that because... I'm the oldest girl, and my baby sister is 16 years younger than I am. And there's like eight of us. It's a whole... Yeah. Anyway. The end of the girls' sophomore year had begun to close, and both had tried out for cheerleading. During the tryouts, it was painfully obvious to Bernadette that Kirsten was much better, more confident, and prepared. Kirsten flawlessly performed and executed the cheers, moves, and the faces judges made it clear. She was a shoe-in. Bernadette, struggling with her envy and resentment, scared she would mess up, did exactly that. She fumbled and faltered, resulting in her name being left off the list of announced squad members joining the cheerleaders the next year. That sounds like shit I would do. Like, I don't want to mess up. I don't want to mess up. 
And then you get out there and you fuck it all up. Like, and it was, oh, there we go. Cheerleading was a really big deal. Like, um, later in this, in this episode, it'll talk about, hold on, I'm going to sneeze again. It's going to hurt. Brace yourself. Well, um, several classmates, when they were interviewed and they talked about how devastated she was when she did not get picked for certain things, especially cheerleading, that it may have well, may as well been like, end of days type shit right i can i can see that my question is was she like did she practice did she go did she do all the work that kirsten did kirsten kirsten k can we just call her k so i can't fuck it up jesus christ kirsten costa i i to my knowledge from what i understand she knew like she did it she worked did she work as hard as kirsten sorry k Jesus Christ. Costa. Uh, Kristen Costa. I don't know. Um, Because it was said by many people that like, Kurt, Kirk, 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 Kirsten. God damn it. This is going to fuck me up now. Kirsten had actually like, she would go home and she would practice in the big window in her living room because she could see her reflection. Mm -hmm. She was constantly practicing the move. She knew the chair. She knew them by heart. She did them on the way to school. She did them. You know what I mean? So did Bernadette put in as much effort as Kirsten? I don't know. Um, but one of the things that it that was like discussed by more than one person, Kirsten Costa was very self-assured. She was mm-hmm. very confident. She was very, like, she knew. She walked with an air about her at even 15 years old that said, I am, I will, I can, like... She had that presence about her. And that can make all the difference. It in, really does. In a tryout, if you're where it seems like Bernadette's head was, like, doubt and, but I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this, and my life is going to be over if I don't. Right. Whereas Kirsten probably went in like, I know this, I got this, I can do this. Exactly. We're doing it. And she did. Yep. Cheerleading, her friend Jessica Grant explains is taken seriously. Before trying out, applicants write essays explaining what they could do to add to the school. Parents sign an agreement to spend $500 to pay for green and white uniforms and cheerleading camp. Girls are graded by 20 judges and told their fate at an Academy Awards type ceremony where outgoing cheerleaders pluck names from envelopes, giving the winners kisses and flowers. Kirsten was one of the winners. She was says one of the judges, a perfect cheerleader. Like, I can... I've been there before because that's how drill team tryouts were. However, they didn't announce. They, like, just put your name on a thingy. Right. But the leading up to it is rough when you have to write an essay. You have to do the dances. You have to know all the shit. You have to go out there and be perfect. You have to make sure you can pay for it because it's expensive because you have to go to camp. You have to buy all the shit. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's a whole thing. It's, it's a lot of pressure. Bernadette was beyond crushed when she learned that she was not amongst the winners chosen to join the cheer squad, which it's fucking uh, public. Like, you're all there waiting, and they're like, oh, you didn't make it. Oh, oh sorry. sorry. No name in an envelope or flowers for you. God, that's got to be shate. Bernadette had two other major disappointing setbacks uh, to her junior year. She did not get selected to be on the yearbook staff. And the membership to the Atlantis Club had also been rejected. However, Kirsten had been accepted to both. This caused Bernadette's jealousy to spiral viciously out of control. 
Kirsten was somehow the physical embodiment of Bernadette's pain and failures, like you said a minute ago. It was as though all of Bernadette's worst thoughts became a person. Kirsten. Mm-hmm. Not to mention a few jabs that had been taken at Bernadette that led to further fixations on Kirsten. Yes. Bernadette had a couple of run-ins with Kirsten that really left her um, jaded, mm-hmm. I guess is a good way to put that. During a ski trip, it was mentioned that Kirsten, who was the daughter of a very wealthy 3M Corporation executive who had the newest and nicest and the best mm. ski attire as well as equipment, made a jab at Bernadette's attire and her equipment. Now, Bernadette was the daughter of a retired public servant. Um, she had much older gear and clothes, and Kirsten had referred to Bernadette's stuff as crummy and then pointed it out to several girls on that trip. The ski trip was like four days long like they oh, left damn. on a yeah so it wasn't just like a day and they like came home the next day when we went yeah <laughs> did you so, ever do that oh yeah yeah so they went you know you would go on friday and you wouldn't come home until like sunday or monday type thing um occasionally oh uh, not occasionally excuse me additionally bernadette had started babysitting most weekends to earn money to purchase trendy name brand clothing and this was in one of her attempts to be socially accepted by Kirsten and part of the in-crowd. Unfortunately, Kirsten made it a point to ask Bernadette if she had purchased her clothes from the Goodwill and snickered at her. And uh, she basically said, like, she was telling people that Bernadette was, like, a desperate follower and that she was secondhand. Which sucks of her to do that. Like, it really does. She doesn't uh, understand what it's like to have parents not be able to buy, like, the simple things, like... In her parents' mind, they're probably like, she has ski stuff, so that's good. Right. She's got it. I'm the same way, though. Like, if you go, and this has been this has been a thing in our town since the dawn of time. If you go to the high school parking lot, let me tell you, okay, most of the kids in that high school, no shit, have nicer vehicles than mm-hmm. 90% of you assholes listening, including me. No shit. That's no shit. And it has been that way forever. I don't know where the fuck people get money for this because there are not that many, like, outrageously wealthy people in this mm-hmm. town. You know what I mean? Anyway. It's like both, they have to show off through their kid's car. Uh, fuck, I don't know. Because when I was in school, I drove my Bronco. I had a 1986 Bronco, too, that I loved to death. Drove the shit out of that motherfucker. Now, did I have one of the nicer vehicles in the parking lot? No. And I mean, no. Not even close, but I thought it was pretty badass. I had a 1980 Chrysler LeBaron, which was ugly as fuck. Where's, where's, where's Freddy LeBaron? Where's Freddy's LeBaron? <laughs> Freddy didn't get a LeBaron? He didn't get, yeah, it, didn't was, get a it was a boat. Oh, like God. a boat car, yeah. And, which... I was fine with because it worked. I I, had a car. I could drive. Yeah. And then it broke. And then I drove an 80-something Suburban. And then I actually got a decent car, but I had to pay for it. Exactly. See, me too. Like, I, my senior year, I went and bought a new car. And I had to buy, like, I paid for all of it. My insurance, my car payment, everything. 
I took care of. Like that was my responsibility. Now my children both have vehicles. Okay. They have always had vehicles. Why? Because I'm a lazy motherfucker. Because it's easier on you to have them. Have Anybody that car. says that a teenager, like, oh, a teenager having a vehicle really is, <laughs> like, it's not a necessity. Fuck you. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. I need milk sometimes and I don't want to go to the store. Dude, you're not driving my truck first and foremost. Mm -mm. And I'm not getting up to take you to school. I'm not getting up to come get you from school. I'm not like, oh, you have to go to work. I'm not going to take you to work and then stay up till one o'clock in the morning to come get you from work. You can fuck right off. But your kids have decent vehicles that work. Yes. They're not like super fancy. They're They're not even close to fancy. Those things like, yeah, both of them drive a car that is at least 20 years old. And that's fine. They are, they aren't like total pieces of shit, but they have their own cars. Anyway, back at the ranch. Right. Um, Bernadette became this seething, furious, frustrated person. And at this point, she, like all of her attempts to be liked by Kirsten have been thwarted. She tried so hard only to be named as the low income kid of the bunch. Which is bullshit. If you have lots of money and you have kids... Teach them to not be fucking cunts. Please. Please please do that. She had... Okay, so this is a quote. She had this obsession about being accepted, even though she was accepted, says a close friend. I've seen her when she would do drugs just to be someone's friend. She was constantly changing. She was popular, but in her own way. Kirsten was in what they call the elite group. Bernadette was popular, but not with that group. She had idolized, but hated Kirsten. I guess when I, and I've said this to a million, I've, I've tried to explain this, that line between love and hate is so fucking thin. Mm. It is like cellophane. You could poke fucking holes in it. True words have never been spoken in a certain situation. She idolized Kirsten, but she fucking hated her. The second that if Kirsten ever would have said, I want to be your friend, she would have been in it like right Oh, now. yeah. But on the other hand, she fucking hated her. She did. Bernadette knew other failures. Her best friend had um, been invited to in- to join Atlantis Club, and that was the other sorority-like club in the school, but Bernadette had not. For her, joining the Bobbies was second best. It was like, oh, I didn't get into the Atlantis Club? Okay, I'll try out for the Bobblings and be a Bobby. When she got accepted, which is still like a big deal. There were a lot of people that did not get accepted. She did, but that to her was like, oh, well, I didn't get this, but I guess I got this. Um... When she failed to make yearbook staff, her whole world fell apart, says Jessica Grant. She pleaded with the dean and the yearbook teacher to reconsider her and then broke down and sobbed, like sobbing and left the school. That sucks. How sad. uh, Bernadette, I know. Bernadette had actually told um, a couple other people, I have an inferiority complex. I'm ugly. No guys like me. I'm so deformed. Look at my body, my hair, my clothes. Everything is so blah. Okay, if you look up pictures of Bernadette Prodi, she's really not a bad-looking girl. She was chunky. That literally was it. She had long blonde hair. She was pretty. Big, bright eyes. She didn't have, like, acne or braces or... You know what I mean? Yeah. She was not a bad-looking girl. She was a little pudgy. And realistically, I mean, like, she was pudgy for, like, skinny girls. She was, like, you know what I mean? Like, on, like, Sex in the City, where she gains 15 pounds and they all make fun of her for getting fat. And you're, like, yeah. I would kill to be that that fat. You are the size of my thigh. 
Right. So let's just go ahead and shut the fuck up My with that. My ankle right now, as fat as I am. <laughs> Bernadette, the youngest of those seven kids in a very religious Catholic family, she had also complained that her parents wore finger quote, so old. And I get that. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you why I feel this to my very core. Yeah, you do. When I was in high school, my mother was a reasonable age. My stepdad was, he's 17 years older than my mom. He was in his late 50s, early 60s when I was in high school. So people saw my stepdad and thought it was my grandpa. That's the age of my dad right now. Exactly. Yeah. So, and that was 20 years ago. Now, that being said, did I care? No. It was fine. Like, I didn't, I I don't know, but I could understand for a lot of other people that, like, when you want to go and do with your family and you're 18 years old and your dad or your guardian or whomever is 60, it's not really quite the same as having young, fashionable parents that are in their in their 40s or late 30s you know what i mean yeah when i was in when i was graduating high school my mom was my age right now exactly so a little bit different that just made me sick did you i saw your face as soon as you said it you're like uh well because i was the second one so my brother had already been graduated for four years your mom was 34 when ryan graduated yeah. yeah fuck that (laughs) Like, I just put a seventh grader into school, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, I'm old. My, I am 38 years old. I will be 39. Spencer will be 41 when our final kid is out of school. Get the fuck out of the house. Pack your shit. Get the fuck out. Love you. You're my favorite. Kick (laughs) fucking rocks. You're my favorite, son. Goodbye. Ah, you're my favorite. Goodbye. Um... So, Bernadette's father was a retired energy engineer for the city of San Francisco. She complained that he never listened to her. Bernadette also felt really embarrassed by their house. Their house was older, the paint was peeling on the outside walls, and the furniture was older than a lot of the other Orinda homes. Bernadette told friends that she longed for a modern, expensive-looking home with Laura Ashley walls and Vogue furniture. It was kind of like the homes that her friends were living in. She coveted that. She wanted those houses. I could relate. Like, our house was nice. And we grew up just... I grew up just fine, but my parents were really tight. So everything wasn't, like, expensive and, you know, all the things that you would think. And I would see all the cheerleaders that would post pictures... Or not post. What did we do back then? They had pictures. I don't know how I saw them. But they had the nice new modern houses and mine was like wood with wallpaper and i was like oh my god like this is you know i want one of those white wall houses which it didn't matter our house was just fucking fine it was a nice house but it's just stupid shit that you want that you don't need cuz it doesn't make a goddamn difference what it looks like bernadette knew that being friends with kirsten was her only hope at leading the social life that she dreamed of because kirsten had everything She was good at everything. She had great friends. The boys chased her. Her grades were impeccable, and she came from a family of money. Bernadette had a childhood friend with whom she had grown apart from in middle school who was in Kirsten's circle. The only time that Bernadette was acknowledged by Kirsten was if she had been talking with her childhood chum. 
Bernadette tried on several occasions to make small talk with Kirsten. Her efforts were subtly rejected, rebuffed, or quickly forgotten. Everyone at Miramont High School knew Kirsten even if they never met her. They knew who she was. Bernadette had a class with Kirsten but was mainly ignored. She was quiet and reserved, and the only time she would get up close to the crowd was when her childhood friend was speaking to her in their presence. Kirsten had apparently never took Bernadette seriously. Bernadette was just a child friend of one of her friends who followed them when she had the opportunity. She never had to struggle with popularity, so she wouldn't have possibly understood the severity and state of mind of someone like Bernadette. I'm sure if she knew what the overly sensitive, high-strung teenager was really be, really, really be, really be, really be, really capable of, she would have stood clear from the get-go. But she didn't and had no fear of someone like Bernadette, who was just a, quote, harmless wannabe in her eyes. Watch out for those harmless wannabes. Yeah. Just saying. They're the ones that turn into, like, single white female shit. Uh-huh. Just saying. Kirsten had also asked for, quote, favors of Bernadette that could have gotten her into trouble mm-hmm. and likely would have had her um, office privileges revoked, such as writing tardy excuses or fixing attendance for Kirsten. Bernadette did, the, did these things in desperate attempt to make Kirsten like her, but it never, like, that never worked. She just... It's like a dude that flirts with a chick to get what he wants type situation. Well, I guess that's usually backwards. You know what I mean. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Yeesh. Bernadette only succeeded in making Kirsten like her less and less. Bernadette had tried too hard, forced almost, and it had backfired. Bernadette was a lurking follower. She was junk mail. She didn't matter to Kirsten, which hurt the most. Thursday, June 21st, 1984. Fur. Fur. 1984. It was a hell of a year in 84. I was fur. I turned fur that year. (laughs) I was three before that. I was three. Then I was fur. Fur. Thursday. (laughs) No, like, 84. 84. 84. Uh, June 21st, 1984. Kirsten Costa is away at cheerleading camp in nearby Morgana at the St. Mary... St. Mary's College. Her mother, Barrett Costas, answered the phone at 10 p.m. She spoke to a female teenager who claimed to be a member of the Bobolinks. The young lady, who said her name was Bobby, that's inconspicuous, What? invites Kirsten to a very private dinner. Invite only. Bernadette pretends that this is a secret, exclusive private invite, and that nobody else can know of the plans. Barrett Costa agrees to let Kirsten attend, and Barrett takes the message and then relays it later to Kirsten. Saturday, June 23rd, 1984, Kristen Costa goes out for a swim. By nightfall, her parents are out for a baseball potluck for her little brother, Peter. At 8.20, Barrett calls Kirsten to remind her to turn on the front porch light and to check on her before she leaves. Around the same time, Raymond Prody had driven his daughter to a house nearby their, nearby their home where Bernadette said that she was babysitting. She asked for him to leave their card, card, car, a family Ford Pinto. Why did I say it like that? A family Ford Pinto. A family Ford Pinto. <laughs> Around the same time, Raymond Prody drove his daughter to a house nearby theirs where Bernadette said that she was babysitting. She had asked him to leave the family car, a Ford Pinto, in front of the house because she said that she would feel safer having her own car, like her own ride home. Raymond agreed, and he walked 150 yards back to his own home. A few minutes later, Bernadette drove off in the Ford Pinto, headed to Kirsten's home. 
Now, there are conflicting reports of who this car belonged to. So, it was listed as the family's car. It was also said to be the older sister's car, who was quite a bit older than Bernadette, but still lived at at the home. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, regardless, Ford Pinto, just keep that in mind. It was, it belonged (laughs) to their Ferdy Fur. Ferdy Fur. Family Ford Pinto. (laughs) It was their family Ford Pinto. Oh, God. All right. Kristen Costa is dressed and walks out of the house. Now, she walks out of the house and sees the shabby little Pinto, and disappointment sets in before she even gets to the car, and she knows it's fucking Bernadette. She's the fucking Karen. She's like, Jesus. Great. So, from there, the Miramont High School teens drove to a church where they could smoke marijuana. It's Kirsten Costa's idea, according to Bernadette. She tells Kirsten that the Bob Links dinner was simply a ruse to get her out of the house and to get Kirsten's parents to agree. In fact, Bernadette claimed that they had been invited to an unsupervised party. I don't agree that that was, it was Kirsten's idea. I bet it was Bernadette, like, I got weed, do you want to smoke it? Because why else would she get in the car? I don't know. I my opinion. Well, sorry. So later we'll actually discuss that because Kirsten Costa and I and I comment on it. Kirsten Costa had some recreational shit going on. I don't judge. I don't judge. Because I did it too. Um, At some point, Bernadette Prody uncomfortably admits that there is no party. According to Bernadette's confession to the police, Kirsten agreed to go to the party but wanted to stop off nearby to hang out and smoke some pot. Kirsten's parents, when they heard this, and it was Bernadette's taped confession, strongly disputed this allegation that their daughter was a casual drug smoker. However, Bernadette said that she didn't want to smoke. She said, we just talked, you know, argued, not really argued, but she didn't, it wasn't a, what did she say? But didn't think it was, it was any big deal. I just didn't want to do that, Bernadette told the police. She thought I was being weird. According to Bernadette, Kirsten stormed out of the car after insulting, after being insulted and was yelling at her and headed to a nearby home where she told the homeowners, Alex and Mary Jane Arnold, that she had been with a friend at a church who had, finger quotes, gone weird. Uh-huh. Kirsten's actions tend to confirm the parents' contention that their daughter was not a drug user. After all, if the girls were heading to a party, why wouldn't Kirsten simply wait to light up there if Bernadette were unwilling? Mm-hmm. It's the fucking 80s. Like, somebody's got to be burning down or... Let's face facts, dude. It was the fucking 80s. Everybody did cocaine. Everybody had a leaky faucet or rusty pipes. Like, everybody was running around with fucking bloody noses back then. I'm serious. One of my <clears throat> one of my supervisors from a former job, we would always joke about how cool he was in the 80s, okay? He lived in Park City. Oh. Park City, and you know as well as I do, Park City is still the fucking happening place to be. Yeah. But in the in the 80s when like skiing was all the rage and Park City was like exponentially fucking cool yep. and everybody was doing retard amounts of cocaine, he's like, yeah, I ended up in rehab. Awesome. Sweet. Hey, me too. <laughs> Just not for cocaine. Anyway. No. Some have speculated that Bernadette Prody came on too strong, giving Kirsten Costas the weird vibes or even lesbian vibes. But many disagree. <clears throat> when there is no answer, uh, Kirsten Costas 
asks Alex Arnold for a ride to her house. His wife, Mary Jane, sees a chunky, round-faced teen with light brown hair lurking near the bushes. Bernadette had been watching Kirsten from nearby. Kirsten Costas seemed concerned, but not terribly frightened, according to Mr. Arnold. Um, as the man pulled out of the driveway to take Kirsten Costas home, Mary Jane sees a yellowish or mustard-colored pinto following her husband's car. This is that family car we talked about, the, f- the, food, the food pinto. <laughs> During the ride, Alex sees the same car behind them. He asks Kirsten if everything is okay. No one is at home at Kirsten's house. Kirsten told the man that the family was out and that instead she was going to go next door. He watched her cross the lawn. Alex waits nervously, eyeing Kirsten as she walks up the path. Dun, dun, dun. Bernadette Prody retrieves a kitchen knife from the car console. Okay, we're, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Yeah, we are. Yeah, we are. Exits the vehicle, appears dramatically on the lawn, and plunges the knife into Kirsten. Kirsten. Five Sorry. times. Five times. Okay. Damn. Alex Arnold had seen the attack, but he thought he had just witnessed nothing more than a fist fight. He had not seen the large knife in Bernadette's hand that she had been wielding. Now, there are other reports or publications that say Mr. Arnold did see the knife, but this wouldn't make any sense. If he saw the blade being plunged into Kirsten, why would he then give chase and leave going after the suspect instead of rendering aid to a mortally wounded teen? To me, that doesn't make sense. Now, the autopsy states that the wounds are so deep... (sighs) What's that face you're making? Just the rage that she had to have to get the knife to go in so deep. It's not easy to put a knife in someone. Right. Someone. The autopsy states the wounds are so deep that the knife had to have been embedded with great force. Like, to the fucking hilt in large kitchen knife. Now, when I say large kitchen knife, I'm like, mm, like an 8 to 10 yeah. inch blade. Okay. Um, all the way to the handle. <laughs> Like when she stabbed her. Now, when you stab, okay, look at it this way. When you stab a melon or a head of cabbage or you're like chopping it and the knife gets stuck Mm -hmm. and you're like trying to pull it out. Yeah. Yank that son of a bitch out of there and it's stuck. All right. Well, she did it five times. That's why I don't, oh, that's what gets me is like, there's, that's a lot of fucking rage right there. There to were. To get it in and out that much, that fast. Yes. There were two foot long gashes in her back, two in her front, including a 15 inch slashing wound that penetrated her arm into her chest, fucked up her left lung. The last one was a defensive wound on Kirsten's right arm, like she had mm-hmm. finally put her, put her, for the fur, she put her arm up. She put her arm up. By the Ford Pinto. Family Ford Pinto. But she had finally thrown her arm up, okay? Screaming for help, one of the, one of the witnesses on that street described it as a blood-curdling yell. Kirsten staggered to her feet and ran across the road while Bernadette fled in the family Pinto. California lawyer Arthur Hillman sees the wounded cheerleader running and falling towards his door. She tells him that she has been stabbed. He applies pressure to her wounds as Kirsten Costa struggles to stay alive. But the Orinda teen that had collapsed in his arms was like every breath she drew was one of her last. Mm. 
Meanwhile, Alex Arnold left the scene. He was the one that tried to catch up with the quote-unquote chunky blonde. When he loses her, he returns to the crime scene and helps. This also does not make sense to me. Let me tell you all the reasons why. Why would you leave somebody that you knew had been mortally wounded with a huge kitchen knife? Number two, really? How hard was it to keep up with a fucking Pinto? Three, that was being driven by a teenager. Because... If you, as a grown adult, cannot outmaneuver a vehicle being driven by a teenager, you need to take your ass back to school. Mm-hmm. Personal opinion, but come on. Get the license number. Help the person dying. Right. Just saying. So Art and Barrett Costas return to Orchard Road. The police and the ambulance are there and are blocking off most of the most of the street. Kirsten Costa is pronounced dead at the local hospital at 11.02 p.m. Bernadette Prodi speeds home back to her house at 16 El Spiral. She walks, she goes in, she takes a walk with her mom, she washes the knife, puts it back into the knife holder. God. She said that afterwards she retreats to her, retreated to her room where she becomes physically ill. Before going to bed, she takes all the weed that was left in the car and flushes it down the toilet. At Miramont High School the next day, the word of Kirsten Costa's death had begun to spread like wildfire. Rumors had already spread at the tennis courts, down oak-shaded lanes, and at the poolside. Someone claimed that it was an act of Satanism or a PCP-induced killing. No one wanted to believe that the killer came from Orinda, the lush northern California suburb where Kirsten lived. Bernadette Prodi acts concerned. She attends Kirsten Costa's funeral but keeps her secret for months, six, Damn. six fucking months, okay? She attended, Prody attended summer school and then returned to Miramont Fall, or Miramont High that fall. Soon the community began collecting a reward fund totaling more than $50,000. Bobby's and other friends of Kirsten posted signs with a description of the crime and killer in almost every Orinda storefront. Still, no arrest was made. In Hawaii, where the seniors had been enjoying a class outing, the name of a suspect had begun to circulate. The same name was mentioned by concerned parents gathered at the airport to welcome the graduates home. Slowly, a consensus was forming. The suspect was one of Kirsten's classmates. Heather, uh, this name was changed for the protection of the person by the author. Once Heather had been a preppy. She went out with a soccer player and had been the member of the little social circles in the quad at lunch. She had fit in, but now acted in a way that set her apart from the others in the school. When she was invited to join the Bobbies, she turned them down. She slipped out of the preppy mode. She dyed the top of her dark hair blonde and dressed in an ex- like dressed in an expensive punk style. She said later that other kids kind of resented it. By unspoken agreement, she and the school's popular quids, quids? Yes, quids. Jesus Christ. Kids quit saying hello to another in the halls. Right now, you know how we were talking about Bernadette trying too hard and not trying to fuck up and then fucked up? Yeah. Me, right now. (laughs) The whole town of Orinda seemed to want me to feel bad because I had dyed my hair. I was not part of the social scene. Heather later wrote in a class essay, This is what I was guilty of in reality. I was guilty of being myself, but I will not change. Even people who weren't close to either girl said that Heather had hated Kirsten for her elitism. And once in biology class said, If you don't shut up, I'm going to kill you. Heather says the incident never happened. 
Three days after Kirsten was killed, sheriff's investigators told Heather her classmates were accusing her of murder. Heather had an alibi. She had been with a boyfriend at his house, and his mother had been there part of the evening. But Heather's mother refused to let her daughter submit to a lie detector test. Interesting, right? Yeah. Rumors about Heather grew steadily. The cranes began receiving calls in the middle of every single night. Everyone thought they knew who did it, recalls Garvin. Everyone but the sheriff's department. They had a long list of suspects. To the police, it was very real, and they had begun begun a massive investigation of the tragedy. They had two leads, okay? They had female figure, and they had the light-colored family Ford Pinto. The family Ford Pinto. They had conducted more than 300 interviews, including four with Bernadette. They tracked down around 1,000 leads, examined 750 Ford Pintos, including the Prodi's car. To police, she was a very likely subject, but to her friends, she was seemingly incapable of such a violent blitz-style attack. One of the quotes... I knew she had the pinto, but she was the last person you would think of. She seemed upset about the murder, and at every as everybody else was. After making little progress, the local police contacted the FBI's behavioral science sciences unit. I want to work in the behavioral sciences unit. Yes. For assistance to create a psychological workup of the killer, equivocally known as profiling, which is exactly where Candace DeLong gets involved in this and makes her. Yes, Her does. own personal profile of this. Um, <clears throat> there are two types of profiling, according to the noted criminologist Brent Turvey. Who labels them as in- inductive and deductive profiling? An inductive criminal profile is one that is generalized to an individual criminal from initial behavioral and demographic characteristics shared by other criminals who have been studied in the past. It is, the pro- it is the product of incomplete statistical analysis and generalization, very often without comparison to norms. Hence, the descriptor inductive. The deductive criminal profiling model is the process of interpreting forensic evidence, including such inputs as crime scene photographs, autopsy reports, autopsy photographs, and the thorough study of an individual offender victimology. To accurately reconstruct specific offender crime scene behavior patterns and from those specific individual patterns of behavior, deduce offender characteristics, demographics, emotions, and motivations. It's very thorough. Yeesh. That sound like that right there. Do you ever get that? Like you'd be sitting there and somebody's like, okay, I have a project. You're going to have to do this, 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 this. And you start, they like list off all the requirements and you're suddenly no longer interested in participating. <laughs> you're like, I lost interest after the, like the second word there. Cause I don't, I don't want to do all that. That sounds very, I just would like to, I'm, I now need a nap based off things that you said out loud. I'll give you an overview and then you can just get the rest out with somebody else. Okay. <laughs> Using the profile, investigators narrowed their suspect list to one person. Ooh, dun-dun-dun. Bernadette Prodi. As time went on, without an arrest, accusations increased against unconventional Heather, and it was said that Heather's boyfriend had access to a gold-colored pinto. Guess what? He didn't. didn't. And that their family was moving to England to avoid prosecution. Guess what? They weren't. Many of the kids believed that the story that Heather was part of a satanic cult was accurate. The teenager, Heather, had become the pariah in her town, shunned by everybody. In September, 
Heather finally transferred to a new school. That sucks. She had nothing to do with it. And no, but she had to, it. like, she had to leave. That's how bad it got. She had to bail. By December of 1984, Bernadette Prody is severely depressed and wants to commit suicide. She attends Catholic Church more. The FBI profile of the killer in- indicates the crime is disorganized, impulsive, a spur-of-the-moment killing. Bernadette was brought in for more questioning and agreed to a polygraph exam. She fails part of it while other parts were inconclusive. Now, some reports say that she actually passed the polygraph, and that's why the police didn't check her alibi that she had been babysitting. So she had been temporarily excused as a suspect. Either way, police still lacked sufficient evidence. Mm-hmm. Accusations and speculations continued throughout the summer, but still no arrests were made. Concerned by the pace of the sheriff's investigation and desperate to find out who had murdered their daughter, the Costases hired a private detective with a small portion of the reward money that was raised by the town. The private eye, Elliot Friedman, suspected that it had been a drug-induced killing or that the killer had harbored a lesbian desire for Kirsten. Yes. In Orinda, a girl with homosexual tendencies, quote, could have a big brand on her forehead, he said. The motive, he suspected, was fear of humiliation. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Friedman rechecked his alibis and most likely the suspects, including Bernadette. She had claimed she was babysitting that night for the Weems family, but Joanna Weems said that she had not asked Bernadette to babysit for her in a year. Long time. When Friedman told detectives that Bernadette had been lying, he was informed that she passed the polygraph test. It's wrong, he retorted. Gavin won't talk about the incident, but the but Friedman says deputies had the polygraph reread this time by the FBI. When it came back, it was clear that Bernadette had been lying. On December 11th, Bernadette was called in for an interview with Ron Hilly a young FBI agent assisting in the case. She stuck to her story initially, but when Hilly described the psychological profile of the suspect in the case, which showed, among other things, that the killer would have little remorse for her crime, Bernadette said, it sounds like me. She asked Hilly if he had ever considered that a 16-year-old girl might be more afraid of publicity than going to prison. Bernadette then said she wanted to go home and think about it and to go home and think and Hilly agreed without a confession authorities didn't have enough evidence to arrest her that night Bernadette told her mom they needed to talk but Elaine Prody was tired the next morning on a cold blustery day Bernadette gave her mother a letter and asked her not to open it for a half an hour Elaine who was studying the Bible set her kitchen timer and resumed reading like what person, like, their kid just comes in and she's like, hey, don't read this for a half an hour. Don't read it while I'm here. I gotta go. And so she set a kitchen timer and was like, me right. Goes right back to her Bible study. Okay. Okay. Bernadette then goes to school. Bernadette had considered suicide, but her religious upbringing had kept her from doing so. She actually told investigators, I would, I would go to hell if I killed myself. The guilt was crushing. Finally, Bernadette pens the letter that she gives to her mother and she admitted that she killed Kirsten... Costa. I have a question real quick before you read the letter. Okay. I should know this. I don't. So suicide is such a big no-no. What is the difference between murder and suicide in religion? You're going to have to ask somebody else. I'm not a religious motherfucker. I'm not either. I like 
I, I think should to know that like now. to take your own life. I, I don't know, but I know that it's a big deal in a lot of different yeah. religions. We're going to have to like Google that or ask somebody that came from like a Catholic or Catholic light. Like go out of, go ask like a fucking Protestant or something. I don't know. I'm going to have to find that out because I didn't really think about that until you just said that. I was like, what is what is the difference here? Is it because you can uh, be forgiven in your quotes? I, yeah, because like, re- well, like in the movie, um, like Constantine, mm-hmm. she was like, my sister would have never killed herself. They came from a very religious upbringing or the, the movie with um, Robin Williams, What Dreams May Come, like... Basically, if you kill yourself, you've banished yourself to hell. Yeah. I don't know. Dear Mom and Dad, I have been trying to tell you this all day, but I love you so much, it's so hard. I'm taking the easy way out. The FBI man thinks I did it, and he is right. I've been able to live with it, but I can't ignore it. It's too much for me, and I can't be that deceiving. Deceiving. Please still love me. I can't live unless you love me. I've ruined my life and yours, and I don't know what to do, and I'm ashamed, and I'm scared. Bernadette. P.S. Please don't say how could you have done this or why. I don't understand this, and I don't know why. Elaine Prody then calls Raymond Prody and tells him what she knows. She insists on picking up Bernadette, not to talk to her, but just to be with her. Later, Raymond, along with Bernadette's mother, Elaine, drive her to the police station where she then confesses to the police. Bernadette Prody tells the police that she's horrified by what she has done and that she only wanted to hurt Kirsten, not kill her. She claimed, right, she claimed she followed her in the Pinto only to make sure that Kirsten got home safely. Not a hundred percent sure on that. I don't. I don't believe. I say not, false. Yeah, not a hundred percent. For sure, not a hundred percent on that. <laughs> um, but as she drove, she became frightened about how Kirsten might describe that event to the other girls. Now, the reason she feared that Kirsten Costa would tell everybody that she was weird and quote that way, and uh, quote, what again? This is where I think that maybe Bernadette did have some unrequited romantic feelings. Because that's like the third time Mm. that somebody indicated that perhaps she was a homosexual. And who gives a fuck what other people think of you? Be you. Be you, boo-boo. Eat that pussy. Beat that dick. I don't care. Have (laughs) confidence in what you got and what you are. Because fuck everybody else. Somebody else is always going to say something about you. Always. Always. Get over it. It doesn't matter. So this is again when a lot of speculation regarding lesbianism was tossed about. In the 80s. Lesbianism in the 80s. Yes. Lesbians. Yeah, lesbians. Let's be honest. It's not that big a deal. No. I don't know. I like. I know that homosexuality has been frowned on. It still is very frowned on. Um, I think it's a lot more acceptable in a lot of other places um and depending on where you are but and i and i get like i had a lot of friends that didn't come out of the closet right. for a long time because of what ostracization and mm-hmm. backlash they might face but oh it's so difficult i just anyway. wish people would be more accepting so that you could just be like fuck what you think angel adopts a very strong sfw policy so fucking what does it negatively affect you in any way shape or form no it does not does somebody being gay affect my ability to work pay my taxes and be happy no it does not in fact it would impact me negatively only in one way 
if they're unhappy, if my fucking friend is so unhappy to be gay that then it makes me unhappy for them, then that is the only time that it's going to impact me in any way, shape, or form. Other than that, it doesn't. I can still lead a productive life for myself by my standards. Amen, sister. So everybody else needs to shut the fuck up. Exactly. Just saying. Fuck. Okay, I'm done. In her confession to detectives, Bernadette also said she was upset she lost for cheerleader and wasn't allowed in the club she wanted. She told them um, her family didn't fit in and she was very hurt after Kirsten Costas called her skis crummy in front of the other club members, which would suck. According to Bernadette's taped confession to police, her family couldn't afford the nice skis. Skis are expensive. And you have seven fucking kids. For Probably real, dude. some of them in college. Like, right? fuck your skis, dude. You have some. Which is more than my kids have. <laughs> the shy teenager also revealed that she was hurt and she couldn't change her looks, become richer, or be popular. The news flew through the town. Everyone knew the killer had been apprehended, but no one knew who it was. Nearly every girl attending Miramont, even those with the flu, showed up the next day. No one wanted to, an absence to be confused with an arrest. They're like, <laughs> yeah, fuck this, like, fuck I'm going to shit. school. Like I, don't, like, I don't care if you have chicken pox, the fucking <laughs> weasel flu. Like, people were like, ah, uh-uh, bitch, I'm going to school. It was a disease day at that high school. Oh, my God. That was, like, the one day that everybody could have died from, yeah. like, a sneeze. Right. You don't know what you're getting. It was like a, a cocktail of germs, <laughs> diseases. Yeah. But don't it was like a disc. <laughs> don't touch it. Don't Never ever touch it. it. But like everybody was like, fuck you. Broken arm. Be damned. I don't care if I got the pox, small or chicken. I'm uh-huh. going to school. We're going. We going. The only person missing from the morning Latin class was Bernadette. The day after the arrest, the sheriff called a well-attended press conference. His team had put in 4,000 man-hours, allowed 1,000 leads, interviewed 800 people, and checked out 750 pintos. I know this was the 80s, but goddamn, that's a lot of pintos. The sheriff told the, the, sheriff told the press as he and other investigators stood for pho- photographers and reporters. The guilt weighs heavily on Bernadette. Mostly she feels terrible about the public exposure and humiliation she reveals. Uh, Contra Costa Juvenile Murder Trial Courthouse in Martinez, 1985. March 11th of 1985. The first of Bernadette's three-day trial begins. She is 16 years old. Mm-hmm. Interested spectators, news media, and Miramont High School parents Pack into the courtroom to hear the sordid details. As the crowd swells, people are asking to exit the courtroom. The judge's annoyance grows, as you can imagine. Like, it's gotta be fucking chaos in there. He believes the murder trial resembles a spectacle, as um, if it's only for entertainment. The prosecutor admits social pressure along with jealousy motivated Bernadette to kill her classmate and that the killing was intentional. The defense agrees jealousy played a role, but tells the jury it's a premeditated killing, or it's not a premeditated killing. The theory is Bernadette Prodi acted on impulse due to a high-pressure moment and that after she murdered Kirsten Costas, she reached out to several people to tell the truth but never did. The defense also thought it would be a good idea to make Kirsten look less perfect by saying she (laughs) recreationally snorted cocaine and smoked weed. Regardless, weed. weed. Do you smoke weed? It's weed. 
Regardless, it was the 80s, and I'm pretty sure everybody did coke. That's what I'm saying, man. Like, I was a child in the 80s, so, you know... We didn't. We did not. You know, if if it were normal for an 8-year-old to put, you know, cocaine up their nose, which maybe it was in some places, but not we're not from we Colombia. Yeah. Now, that being said, the 80s, everybody was smoking cocaine, snorting cocaine. Like, that's when crack cocaine made mm-hmm. a really big... You know, just saying. Everybody did it. Everybody. Everybody did it. Everybody in the She did it. You did it. Mom did it. Everybody did it. Everybody did it. Everybody did it. I just want everybody to know, y'all motherfuckers are lying. If your mom was like, I never. Yes, that bitch did. Bernadette Prody sits with her mother and sister. Her mother holds her hand throughout the court proceeding. They cry at various points during the trial as they stroke and hug Bernadette. Bernadette Prody claimed to have found the kitchen knife by chance. Her elder sister, Virginia Varela, testified in court that she kept the knife in her car to cut vegetables. What? So, <laughs> so apparently Virginia is a vegetarian. And she would often prepare meals in her car, like go to the store on her way to work, buy everything, Cut things up and then put it in a bag to take to work. Okay. And she claims that the gigantic fucking kitchen knife was in her car because that's where she would meal prep her vegetarian meals. Now, the Costas did not believe Prody's story. They asserted that nobody would use a goddamn butcher knife to slice tomatoes and that Prody, casually dressed that evening, had no intention to take Kirsten, 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 to a party... But had planned to murder her. Now, this is the 80s, where going to a party meant that you put on skirts and blouses. And, like, not like us. When we go to parties, we put on a clean hoodie and... For fucking... Like, (laughs) I put on some clean leggings. I put on a clean pair of sleeves. Like, not the same as for us. Contra Costi jurors hear Bernadette Prodi's confession tapes and hear her handwritten letter in the courtroom. Those in attendance say that you could hear a pin drop. At Bernadette's sentencing, Kristen Costa's mother begs the court for justice by prosecuting Bernadette to the fullest extent of the law. During Barrett Costa's statement, Bernadette listened with her head down. March 13th, Bernadette Prodi is found guilty of second-degree murder in the death of her classmate, Kristen Costas. The original charge was first-degree murder. Because she was only 15 at the end, at the time of the offense, California law required that Bernadette be tried as a juvenile. She never disputed the crime, but only argued that mens rea justified a second-degree murder charge. The murder of her daughter, Barrett says, was premeditated from the very phone call. Bernadette had plenty of time to change her mind. The Costases charged that Bernadette's confession was riddled with lies and that no one would use an 18-inch, Jesus fuck, I thought it was like a 9 or 10-inch knife. damn. 18-inch, right? That looks about yeah. right, doesn't it? Yeah. And why would you wash it and put it well, back Well, here's the thing. After- so here to here on me... Is that is about eight inches? Yeah. So add ten to your forearm. That's a huge motherfucking. Why knife. would you wash it and put it back in the kitchen block at home too? If your sister kept it in her car, wouldn't you wash it and put it back in the car? Well, that too. But if you're using that to cut tomatoes, you have a fucking problem. Like a paring knife or a garnish knife is completely acceptable. Um, and they also, of course, brought up the fact that. 
Bernadette called and pretended to be somebody else to get her out of the house. Mm -hmm. That's pretty pretty premeditated. And the fact that she showed up like casually dressed in clothes that she could throw away also kind of indicate that's indicative of I'm going to do some shady shit. Well, Bernadette Prody is given up up to nine years in prison. No less than, but no more than nine. After she receives her sentence, she is placed in handcuffs. She begins crying and steals one last glance at her family before she's forced to leave the courtroom. Orinda residents are outraged that the teen killer got off with such a light sentence. Bernadette Prody is placed in the Youth Authority's Ventura School. This is funny because me, I just had somebody in my custody at my job that was guilty of aggravated murder, which means he hurt somebody that was aggravated assault. And because that person died, it then went to aggravated murder. Mm -hmm. He won't even be up for parole for 20 years. And he was a juvenile. Yes, he was. They charged him as an adult at the age of 16. He did the crime at 15. So, California, a lot more lenient. If you're going to do it, do it in California. Do it in California. (laughs) The California Division of Juvenile Justice, the DJJ, previously known as the California Youth Authority, the CYA, is a division of the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. They provide education, training, and treatment services for California's most serious youth offenders. I want to work for these people. I don't want to live in California, though. No. These youths are committed by juvenile and criminal courts to 11 correctional facilities. Four are conservation. I like how they word it as conservation. Mm-mm. Conservation camps, two residential drug treatment, and two drug resident. Hey, words are fun. Two residential drug treatment programs. Uh, they have the DJJ provide services to juvenile offenders ranging in age from 12 to 25 in facilities and on parole and work closely with law enforcement and the courts, district attorneys and public defenders with pro- probation offices and other public and private agencies to keep involved with the problems on the youth. The DJJ is undergoing reorganization as required by a court agreement and the California state legislature after widespread criticisms of conditions at its youth prisons. The agency's headquarters are in Sacramento, California. There have been several changes in Orvinda since Bernadette's conviction. For one, some of Heather Crane's former classmates have started speaking to Heather again. I think a lot of people feel bad, says one junior, referring to the rumors implicating Heather. What can you do? You can't make up for six months of hell. No shit, you assholes. For the students, the killing and its aftermath have left bitter feelings. Many say they can't trust anyone anymore, not after what Bernadette did. And they realize the problem didn't only lie with Bernadette. People can get really nasty at this school, says one junior standing with a group of classmates on the lawn surrounding Miramont. Everyone says this school is so boring, they just start doing things for entertainment. They start being cruel. Everyone wants to be the best. It's so competitive. That's kind of how it is here. I think that's a lot of how it is everywhere. Yeah. Just varies in intensity and type. You know what I mean? For them, it was cheerleading. Here, it's drill team cheer and 
Like, football. What I keep telling my kids, and I wish somebody would tell all the kids, is once you get out of high school, it doesn't fucking matter who was important. Like, who was popular and who was liked and who was good at shit. Because everybody gets thrown to the wolves after this and we all have to fight for ourselves. Fuck, for real. And it doesn't fucking matter. The people who were popular might be the girl that's like, you know... Living off welfare, the single mom. Like, you know what I mean? And her kids are struggling now. Maybe it was a foul-mouthed goth chick that now does a popular podcast. (laughs) Called Color Me Geriatric. Called Color Me Geriatric. You know what? (coughs) Nobody likes your attitude. (laughs) I was a nobody who everybody said I was stuck up because they took my shyness for being stuck up. I guarantee you it was not that. I was scared to death of my own fucking shadow. While in prison, Bernadette gets a high school diploma, makes straight A's, and obtains an an Associate of Arts degree through a college mailing program. She writes letters to close friends and supporters. Mostly she does well, though she has a few altercations. One is with a teenage boy with whom she falls in love. She exhibits the same signs of rage that leads to the death of Kirsten Costas. This altercation will come back to haunt her when she is considered for parole. After the trial, Bernadette Prodi's family leaves Orinda and the Contra Costa County. Kirsten Costa's parents and brother relocate to Hawaii. June 17th, Kirsten Costa's parents, Arthur and Barrett Costas, file a suit against Bernadette Prodi and her parents, Raymond and Elaine, in Martinez, California. 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 No, he had a parody. <laughs> the Costas family said that Prodi parents should have known of the dangerous tendencies Bernadette had. They also accused the Prodies of negligence in care and supervision of their child, according to court records. Kristen Costa's parents asked for damages based on the sustained great emotional disturbance, upset, shock, and nerve and injury to the nervous system. Basically, pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, also, of the permanent nature, since they had to bury their kid, they also sought for payback of monies spent on burial and funeral expenses. The outcome of the suit had not been published. June 26, Bernadette Prodi receives a tentative parole date that could her allow could allow her freedom at the age of 22. There was a in good god, there was an article that was posted in July uh from Randall Sullivan called Death of a Cheerleader that was put into Rolling Stone. Now this moves on to the Parole. 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 The way we're saying words today. Parole. The, the parole of Bernadette Prodi. In 1990, Bernadette Prodi is denied early parole at 21. She's considered a model inmate. The Youthful Offender Parole, Bro- parole Board says, we'll, we'll re-review your case in six months. In December, Bernadette Prodi is also denied parole again. Art and Baruch... Costas sent a videotape from Hawaii demanding that she stay in prison. 1991, in June, she is denied parole yet again. In 92, in June, parole board member Victor Weishart votes to keep Bernadette Prodi in jail. He reasons that she continues to present danger excuse me, present danger to the public and needs treatment because she still acts on impulse and lacks ability to control her anger. He bases his decision on a violent altercation she had with her boyfriend at the school 
slash prison, where she demonstrated that same rage that led to the death of Kirsten Costas. The parole member also said that Bernadette Prodi has a hidden trigger that is switched on when she feels like she's not getting what she wants in her relationship. Hmm. Jamie Bailey and Sergio Gomez, however, go forward and grant Bernadette parole because she poses no threat to, to society. No immediate threat. Just anyone she gets pissed off at. Well, pretty much. In an interview with the San Francisco Chronicle from Honolulu, Arthur Costas said that he holds resentment for a judicial system that allows a killer to go free after only a few short years. So Bernadette did seven years. Of mm-hmm. of what? They said up to nine. Yeah. She did seven. He also finds it disheartening that Prody was allowed to have a boyfriend during her stint. Now... Uh, do I agree? Okay, here's the thing. Here's here's a personal opinion. Um, do I think a kid at 16 years old obviously commits a commits a crime has to do correctional time? Yes, I do. The 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 youth authority where she was being kept is basically like a a little concentration camp for youthful offenders. Now, it is mixed. It is co-educational atmosphere. They're still getting okay. So, Regardless of what their crime was and how long they're going to be there, they have a right. It is a civil right that they have access to educational system and educational classes. Okay. Mm -hmm. That being said, being in a co-educational atmosphere, you're going to be with boys. Now, should they be allowed to have personal relationships of an intimate, like intimate nature? Eh. I don't know. I don't really know how I feel about that. How are you going to keep that many away from each other? You're not. You're really just not. But she did seven of the nine years in in a youth authority. So, I mean, eh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. So, in 1994, Kirsten Costas' case falls off the radar. Bernadette Prodi lives in complete anonymity. By April, Bernadette Prodi files and pays more than $60 to have her first and last name changed. In May, the courts officially give Bernadette Prodi a new name. She sometimes uses aliases or a varied spelling of her new new name. Her new last name, excuse me. May 1994, she marries her husband under her new new name in Monroe, Florida, according to Florida's marriage records. They live and settle in a small town, a small home in the Midwest. By September, the movie A Friend to Die For, also called Death of a Cheerleader, premieres. Most viewers, except for those who lived in Orinda, don't make the connection between the movie and the real people. In 1996, Bernadette Prodi studies nursing at University of Oklahoma, and she graduates with honors. Bernadette Prodi studies medical science and obtains a master's degree to become a nurse practitioner. Uh, For those of you who don't know what a nurse practitioner is, they're very much like a doctor. They can, what? Yeah. I have questions about this nursing thing. Why? Because normally you have to not have like such a criminal background. Juvenile record. Dropped. Okay. Juvenile record. That was my question. Because she was still in, in her adult years. So I was wondering if it. It's still part of a juvenile record. She was considered and charged and served as a juvenile. Makes me wonder how many of your nurses and doctors had criminal records in their juvies. How many of you killed people? Well, I didn't know. Uh, 1998 to 2000, Tracy Curry Reyes finds the name of real people who inspired the movie, A Friend to Die For, and or slash Death of a Cheerleader. Tracy Curry Reyes is a true crime 
and true story expert storyteller as seen on BET. She's also been on TV One and Investigation Discovery, as well as Crime Watch Daily, Reels, Oxygen, Oxygen, and Lifetime Television. She places Bernadette Prodi's true story on movies based on true stories into a da- database with real pictures of Kristen Costa and some of the other big players in the case. An even bigger following around this case begins as the readers search for more updates on Bernadette Prodi and the Costas family. By 2001, Bernadette and her family, her husband, namely, move to a larger and pricier home in another state. They move around between three separate states, trying to keep her mm-hmm. identity hidden. By 2006, Bernadette still living under her new name, is appointed as a director of a breast cancer organization. She conducts breast cancer research and writes medical articles about her findings in scientific medical journals. She serves there until 2007. In 2008, there is a blog that Bernadette Prodi found an offshoot of the now defunct movies based on true stories. And basically, the archives give the first update... In the case, revealing information about Prodi's new identity, the name change, and Tracy Curry Reyes does her a solid and does not reveal the new name. Tracy informs her readers that a recent photo of Bernadette Prodi appeared at a breast cancer site where she was on the board of directors. She told the readers to go and download a copy of the photo, but not to publish the photo online. Tracy reaches out to the Prodi family for an interview. There's There's no response, and the matter is dropped. Now... You can't go and pat yourself on the back and be like, I helped keep her anonymous. I just said that she was part of a research foundation and that she was part of the board of directors. But I never said who, what, when, where, why. Yeah, you fucking did. Because internet sleuthers, coast to coast, will find that shit. And you just told her whole story so people are re-aware of what happened. You just drug up old shit. You fucking, you were digging up bones. Mm -hmm. So, months later, Bernadette Prodi's photo mysteriously vanishes from that cancer website. Some demand to know where she's at and accuse Tracy of protecting her. They also want to see the photo that she has in her possession. Hmm. In 2012, years have passed. Then Bernadette Prodi, under the murder of Kirsten Costas, airs on Investigation Discovery. Um, this is where I was telling people, you can go and look up Deadly Women or um, Killer Kids or Women Who Kill. The episode is called Deadly Delinquents. Fun fact. Yes. I heard about this case from my son <laughs> who watches Killer Kids and all that shit. He loves it. That's why when I started reading this, I was like, oh, I know this, because Calvin told me. <laughs> oh, yeah, my son? Yeah. Told me. <laughs> my son told me all about this. I didn't tell him we were doing this, because I knew he would be mad that we did it without him. He is, like, dead set to be on an episode. In 2013, a television producer reaches out to Tracy Curry Reyes for an interview about the Kirsten Costas Bernadette Prodi case for Lifetime's Killer Kids. In Florida, Tracy shows the producer the recent photo of Bernadette from the hotel computer lobby. The woman is shocked to see that it really is Bernadette. Bernadette's family and the Costas family refuse to participate in the show. In March, the episode about the murder of Kirsten airs on Lifetime's true crime, rea- er, true crime documentary, Killer Kids. April, Tracy Curry Reyes follows the trail of Bernadette and reveals to her readers that she found a baby registry online for Bernadette and her husband. That's fucked up. Mm-hmm. Fans still contact Tracy Curry Reyes for, in- for confirmation of her new name. 
at least two readers email Tracy with Bernadette's new name and ask her, ask her to confirm that it's her, and Tracy confirms it. Bernadette Prody has an unknown enemy who has set out to destroy her. In December, Bernadette's new name is leaked online. The same photo that Tracy Curry Reyes saved in her email files and the same photo that was deleted from the breast cancer website miraculously appears online. So where is Bernadette today? Mm. Uh You ask yourself. In 2015, trouble brews for for the Bernadette. She is now a, the the Bernadette. The Bernadette. Yes. Trouble brews for Bernadette. She is involved in a litigation due to her involvement with the breast cancer place years earlier. She's accused of negligence and violating her duties properly as a director. The founder and president is accused of benefiting from the charitable organization during Prodi's tenure. Prodi operating her new Identity claims she had no knowledge of the founder's shady dealings. In June, Bernadette Prodi's new identity still floods the internet as a slew of what happens to be fake social pages are set up in her new name. In 2016, the claims against her are dismissed. She returns to her normal life. Could the leaked photo and new name information be connected to the scandal at the breast cancer organization? Or is it a relative? I don't know. A relative. I don't know. 2018, the state website says Bernadette Prodi has an expired nursing license as of 2016. Today, Bernadette Prodi lives with her husband in a beautiful $600,000 home. Four bedrooms, three bath. Damn. Yeesh. 2019, February 2nd, a Lifetime movie remake, Death of a Cheerleader, airs. They use um, different names for all of the characters. Well, an internet sleuther, an internet detective, for lack of a better term, Mm -hmm. who was even more obsessed with the case than we are, managed to figure out that Bernadette Prodi changed her name to Jeanette Butler. Jeanette is how you say it. Jeanette (laughs) Butler. Baudelaire. Baudelaire. The skilled Googler also found out that Jeanette's name had been changed again to Jeanette Tomenka when she got married. The researcher put Prodi's new identity out on the internet in 2018. She also revealed that Tomenka's first move was to Oklahoma City to attend OU, then to the suburban Dallas area of Grapevine, and became a nurse and a medical journal writer. There are three recent photos of Jeanette Tomenka, that were posted. Oddly, Tamanka has a blog called JeanetteTamanka.com that is still up, although her last post was more than three years ago. Okay, so the identity outling outing was most likely due to the researcher not being satisfied with the length of Prodi's sentence. This internet sleuthing may be legal, but isn't morally right. Keep in mind that the Tamankas are believed to have two young children. One, on one hand, Prodi Tomenko was 15 when she committed her murder, and her sentence was technically served. On the other hand, before her confession, Prodi let two other girls be harassed and essentially had to leave the school under the suspicion of them being Kirsten's killer. So, is the identity outing wrong? Like, is that the wrong thing to do? Or do you think that Jeanette Tomenko deserves it? Would you say that, to the identity outer, get a life already, what do you think? So here's my thing, okay? There's an actual, okay, it's called BernadetteProdiExposed.blogspot.com. 
And you can go and look at this. Now, the young lady who put this together, her description of herself says, my name is Brittany. They call me Brit. 27 in Seattle. No kids. Happily engaged. Why do you do this blog? I run this blog because Kirsten Costas is always alive in our hearts. We will not let the world forget her or let lifetime have the last say. My thing is, okay, you're 27 years old which makes you literally a decade younger than me. And I was a baby when this all went down, meaning that you had never even been considered. No. Unless you are a direct relative of Kirsten Costas, which even then you wouldn't have been alive to know this person. What is her, like, what is her obsession with keeping this alive? Yeah, like, uh... There, she's always alive in our hearts. Is she? Is she? Did you know her? Do you know anything about her? I don't think the outing was right because I feel like she turned her life around. Obviously. From the information we have. She's not that way anymore. But on the other hand, like as far as her family goes, if that was my kid that got killed, I would want her identity to be out. I want everybody to be able to watch out for her. I want them to know who she is. I don't know. I don't know. Should we go to, back to, I don't know. Better know. That's what I'm good at saying. I just I don't know. I, at this particular juncture, I think that kids that perpetrate crimes, um, that serve their time, you know, if they go through great lengths to hide their identity, mm-hmm. look at... Mary Bell, is that who you're thinking of? Mary Bell, James oh. Bulger, um, the the child of rage. Mm-hmm. She had her name changed. Um, there's a lot that goes on that, you know, the kids that killed James, or yeah, James Bulger, they got their names changed mm-hmm. and nobody fucked with them. But I don't know, dude. I really think that if, if you ser- like you've served your time, and done the rehab. Like, you yeah. did the treatment. You went through it. You did seven years. You then went to school. You became a nurse. And you've got somebody in Seattle that's happily engaged without children. Why do I run this blog? Because Kirsten Costas is always alive in our hearts. Sweetheart, you weren't even a part of any of that. So what is her stick? No. Like, I'm just curious. No. Even as a family member. You would be way down the totem pole on the, on the, this is your family member. Uh You didn't know this person. Mm -mm. You didn't have an investment in a relationship with that person. I'm just curious what, like, what do you guys think? Yeah. Maybe we should put this on YouTube so I can say, drop a comment below. (laughs) Smash the thumbs up and drop a comment below. My kids watch way too much YouTube. Right? I feel like I say that shit in my sleep. Like, I feel like I should say that to my kids when I'm like, clean your room and comment below afterwards. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So maybe let's kill people with words or even kindness, but not knives. Mm -hmm. And uh, stay stay out out of chalk lines. lines. Goodbye. Goodbye.